You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Father, we want to say here that we love and submit to your word uh, when it makes us smile and when it uh, feels good to hear and when it pierces our hearts and cuts our legs out from under us. And uh, this moment and this uh, passage in Jesus' sermon is definitely doing the latter. And so God, uh, I just, I just want to acknowledge, God, that you have purpose in both of those moments in Scripture. And we, we want to sit under the wisdom and the truth of your word, despite what it makes us feel in the moment. And so God, would you come and help us believe true things, even if those true things are hard things? Like, I really want you to help us believe this morning. As we come around the fire of your word, will you warm it by us? Will you warm us by it? Will you you change us by it? Will Will you illuminate us by it? God, we're desperate for you to, to move and work, and we know that no amount of convicting preaching or song sung has the power to do anything. Only your spirit. So, Spirit of God, help us. And we know that you want to and will because, Father, you have given us Christ, and how will you not also with Christ freely give us all things? We love you. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, well I didn't realize... Uh, about three years ago when I came on staff that uh, one of the prerequisites for ministry at Stonegate was to have an idolatry-like affection for sports. Uh, But it is. You just need to know that about your pastors and pray for them strongly. I am uh, the guy who finds out about uh, the Super Bowl like at halftime on the Super Bowl. Like, oh, that's happening today. That's me. I, I just don't I don't care. Here's the thing. I like sports. I'm pro sports. I'm just not pro the Rodney Hobbs sanctioned version of sports. Uh, There's a whole nother set of sports I like. I am a bowler. Um, No judgment. I love, yes, yes, we'll bowl later. I love bowling. I don't know. Uh, some, some men, you know, uh, watch March Madness. Other men watch PBA bowling tournament videos in their closet so as not to shame their family. Uh, that is me. I love it. Uh, I'm not any good at it, uh, but I make up for it with passion. And uh, I even have like a bowling guy. Like his name is Stuart. He's my dealer. Um, I get my swag from, from Stuart and uh, my, my bowling tips from him. And uh, one time I asked Stuart, uh, because he, he like works in the bowling industry. Did you know there's an industry? Uh, I asked him, have you, so have you ever seen like a guy bowl like a 300 game? Like, is that something that you've, you've seen before? Because, you know, that's sort of the coup de grace. Like, that's like the thing that, that's the highest you can get in bowling. Have you seen that? And he responded, oh, yeah, like all the time. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's actually not that hard to bowl a 300 game. And I was like, totally. It's totally not, yeah. He said, no, it's not. See, guys uh, and women, too, come in here all the time, and, and, and they, will, uh, 
They'll bowl a handful of 300 games over a, you know, a couple weeks, and, and they will think to themselves, I could do this professional. They'll go professional with their bowling. And as they, as they go professional, they realize pretty quickly that they can't hack it, that they fail miserably. Almost every time I see this happen, I say, well, why is that? And he says, well, and he leans in, and he says, because people don't know what bowling's really about, which is a weird thing to say. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's not about the pins, bro. It's about the oil. And the way he said it almost sounded like we were talking about something important. He's like, man, it, this is, it is all about the oil. The secret of bowling is knowing the oil patterns on the lanes. Did you know this? Like there's different types of oil patterns that are going to affect your ball down the lane. This is so nerdy. Why am I talking about this? It's going to affect your ball. So like, like if it goes far with the oil, your, bar, your ball slides further before it breaks and hits the pin. If it comes short, then your ball breaks earlier. So you have to know how to navigate the oil on the lanes. The problem, of course, is oil is invisible. Right? And because it's invisible, people often neglect it. So, so they keep playing the game thinking they're focused on the right target, those pins down there, but it's actually the thing that's hidden that determines whether or not you do well. He said, what we see is not most important. It's what we don't see that actually matters most in this game. And in many ways, that's exactly our experience as people, isn't it? Like, we grow accustomed to a certain way of understanding how the world works, how things operate, uh, how to navigate life. We, we grow accustomed to how it is that we're to walk as a Christian. But if we're not careful, it, it's possible for us to spend our whole lives prioritizing these things over here, thinking these are the main things, when the whole time this invisible aspect that we weren't privy to is actually the thing that we need to be pouring our attention and time into. And so often we can actually be working not for our flourishing, but for our destruction if we're not careful. And what we need more than anything is for those invisible realities to kind of be exposed to us. That's what we need as people. Now, welcome to this moment in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is opening our eyes to the way things actually work, like to the things God actually values and prioritizes, and he's showing us the invisible realities that are meant for our forever joy in him. And here in this section of the sermon, we're going to see three crucial, invisible realities that Jesus is desperate for us to grab hold of. Three realities. We're going to see that our problem, he says, goes deeper than we think. Number two, that our penalty is greater than we think. And therefore, our greatest need is different than we think. Our problem goes deeper than we think. Our penalty is greater than we think. And therefore, our greatest need is different than we think. We're going to see that in this moment in the text. So let's jump into it and look at our problem at first. So get your Bible out if you uh, don't have it yet. It's uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, and it reads this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, stop. That's simple enough, right? Uh, he, he starts by just bringing their attention 
to something that they would be really familiar with, the common teaching of their day, of their Jewish faith. But notice something. Notice what he doesn't say here. Look at the very beginning. He said, you've heard it said to those of old. You've heard it said to those of old. He doesn't say you've read that it was said. He says you've heard that it was said. Now, we're trusting that Jesus doesn't mince words or speak accidentally. So why did he say heard and not uh, read Well, he did that because he's dealing here not with the actual law written down in the Torah itself, though obviously what he said, don't commit murder, is rooted in the sixth commandment, right? Don't commit murder. But he seems, instead of focusing on the text of their law, he seems to be focusing and calling their attention to what their teachers have said to them about the law. Okay, you tracking? So so what he's about to deal with is not the law itself, but the interpretation of that law, the commentary that they've been getting from their teachers on the law. He's saying, this is what you've heard your whole life. Your whole life you've heard that the great crime is murder. And that to avoid judgment, you should avoid murder. And you can hear the crowd kind of hear that and go, yeah, yes, and? Like, is that it? And what? But he doesn't give them an and. He gives them a but, and he changes things right here. Verse 22, but I say to you, stop. You, you have, please feel how controversial this is. Feel, like, in those, like, five words, feel this. This is Jesus' likely, it's his first sermon ever publicly, Right? It's been 30 years of of sort of ministry silence, and now he shows up on the scene. This is his first big foray into preaching, and his first message, one of the first points he makes is to say, I disagree with your teachers. That's what he leads with. This would be the equivalent of like, like Rodney inviting a guest preacher to preach one Sunday, and you sit down and open up your bulletin as he gets up, and it reads, your pastor doesn't know what he's talking about, is the title of the sermon, right? That's what this would feel like if you were there. So, of course, now everybody's all ears, right? You have my attention. What, what do you say that's different from what we've heard our whole life? What do you say that's different? Verse 22, he clarifies. But I say to you, what? That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you had been there, you'd have been able to hear a pin drop. There is likely not a more offensive statement that Jesus makes in his whole ministry. I'm going to say it again just so you can feel it. Think about the implications. Just feel this with me for a moment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes their 2D view, their understanding of the law, and he flips it on its side, and he makes it 3D, and he says, the the condition that is so common to all of you hearing my voice, and in this room, the condition that is present in all of us at any given time, this condition of anger, he is... He is equivocating it and putting it on equal footing with one of the worst things you could imagine doing as a human being. That's what he just did. You've heard 
that if you only avoid these big bad sins over here, that you'll have obeyed the law. But I say you're guilty even if the worst thing you do is harbor private anger towards someone. You've heard that God cares about the bare minimum requirements for obedience, but I say he expects your whole person to permeate with obedience. You've heard that your biggest problem is external, but I say your biggest problem is internal. That's the first point Jesus is making, that our problem, our primary problem in life is not external, it's internal. Private anger and even the small displays of anger in our life that that go public are elevated in Jesus' estimation to the same sphere as taking someone's life. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That phrase... Uh, fool right there is the uh, Greek word moros. It's where we get our word moron from. It's name calling, right? The the phrase insults his brother. In in some translation, it just reads, whoever says to his brother raka, it's a Greek word raka, which means like empty headed or know nothing or good for nothing. So he's talking about name calling and you go, okay, I get that's like impolite, but like name calling? And, and like private anger, you're saying that is the same as murder? How is that possible? It's possible, Jesus says, because he understands behind every single murder that has ever taken place in human history has been an angry heart. Every murder comes with an angry heart. Murder is like a tree, right? And it's big and it has roots and it has leaves and it's there and present but the seed that created that tree is anger and this might shock you to think about but God understands that all of our unrighteous anger listen would be murder if it could be murder just given the right context take away a few certain laws and you will see that happen in you it's possible more than you think. Anger's the tree. I mean, murder's the tree, but anger is the seed. Even Hollywood understands this, right? You, uh, you remember 10 years ago, a movie came out, Minority Report. Remember Minority Report with Tom Cruise? What's the premise of that movie? It's a little absurd, but it takes place in the future. There's like this group of psychics, essentially, that can see the future and can predict crime before it happens. So the, the, a pre-crime division of the police force gets created. And what they do is they get word on who's going to commit a crime of murder, And they arrest that person before they've killed the person. And they go to jail for life for something that they never actually did. What's the point? What are they saying? The point is, you don't have to have done it to be guilty of it in God's eyes. Murder starts in the heart. That's where it starts. In your chest is where it begins. Just think about this. All those crimes that us nice people cringe at, start with the seed of sin inside of us. Now, at this point, questions are probably coming up in you. Clarity is probably needed for some things. For instance, what do we mean when we're saying the word murder? That's a big word. Do you mean categorically 
that all feelings and expressions, uh, I'm sorry, anger, all feelings and expressions of, of anger are wrong? Is that what you're saying? That like anytime I'm angry, God says you're a murderer? Well, that, that can't be right, right? Because Jesus was angry plenty, right? You, you see in the gospels all the time, uh, Matthew 23 is a great example. You just wanna see Jesus blow up some folks, he's just tearing into the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He even goes so far as to call them fools in the chapter. So, so if anger is categorically sinful, then we're accusing Jesus of murder. And we know we shouldn't do that because Jesus isn't a murderer, right? So, so we have to get our categories straight. What do we mean when we say anger? And I'm going to split it into two categories. We're going, to, we're going to call one righteous anger, and we're going to call the other unrighteous anger. I'm going to do a little bit of defining of terms, just so as we work through the rest of this sermon, you'll have your categories straight. And you won't be calling something bad that's good and good that's bad. Okay, so let's talk about righteous anger for a moment. When I'm saying righteous anger, I'm saying the type of anger that is awakened when you see God's kingdom being slighted. Righteous anger is awakened when God's kingdom is being slighted. So um, being bothered or angry over injustices or the belittlement of God, the not taking seriously of him or the destruction of people made in his image should awaken in you anger, right? We see this in Jesus. You remember uh, Jesus with the money changers in the temples. He's going into the temple. He's literally flipping over tables. Dude has a whip in his hand right? He's super hot in this moment, but why? Because this space was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves, he says. You're belittling my God. You are slighting the kingdom of God. That makes me angry. That's righteous anger. Unrighteous anger isn't awakened when, uh, just when God's kingdom is slighted, but it's awakened when our kingdom is slighted. She got that opportunity I wanted. That was mine. She got it. Who does she think she is taking that from me? See, it's, it's primarily concerned with protecting and establishing and growing my kingdom. And when my kingdom is threatened and unrighteous anger is produced in me. Okay? So those are the genesis of, of those two types of anger. Let's go back to righteous anger. Righteous anger uh, not only is awakened when God's kingdom slighted, but it delights in the flourishing of others. It delights in the flourishing of others. So let's go back to Jesus for a moment. So Jesus uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Matthew 23 moment, remember he's, he's getting super hot at the Pharisees, he's going after him. And, and you would think, man, this is just, how is this not unrighteous anger? But how does he end? He ends the, Matthew 23 by saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those who stone the prophets and, and kill those who are sent to you. How often I've longed to gather you in my arms like a hen gathers her chicks. You, you sense in that moment, I actually want something for you, Pharisees, and it's your good, but you won't have it. You're being obstinate, but I want this for you. He's, he's laboring actually for their good. He cares about their flourishing, but that's, it's not that way with unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger, unrighteous anger delights in the destruction of others, not the flourishing of others. 
So she got the opportunity I wanted, and so now I begin to slander her to my friends to discredit her and to belittle her and to shame her. Now when, when she finds suffering in her life, I rejoice, and when she is rejoicing in her life, I've experienced suffering. Because what I'm mostly after is her destruction, not her flourishing. So unrighteous anger likes that, moves toward that, delights in the destruction of others. So those are the big distinctions here. Now, one caveat. Um, unrighteous anger can be awakened when our kingdom is slighted. But it can also be awakened when God's kingdom slighted. So what I mean is this, we can be upset for a right reason, but act out in a wrong way, right? You might hate abortion because 3,000 babies are being murdered legally every year in the U.S., and that's right to hate that. It's wrong, it's broken, it's evil, it belittles God's kingdom, but you don't go blow up a clinic. Because when you do that, you have, might have had a righteous anger to begin with, but the actions you take have proven unrighteous. Do you see that? Let me give a, a, another example. Guys, your wife might be as mean and manipulative and as unloving as you say she is. And that's wrong. And that belittles God's kingdom. And it offends God for your wife to act sinfully. But if that drives you, husband, to slander her to your friends, or cuss her out, or be passive-aggressive toward her, or be violent against her, or abandon her, or spite her by sleeping around with other women. You might have begun with righteous anger, but you are now a murderer as far as God's concerned because you don't care about her flourishing, but her destruction. Do you see that? So it might have begun righteously, but it ended in death for you, in unrighteous anger. Jesus refuses to play religious games with us. He's not interested in that. He wants us to know God sees all of your cutting remarks, your wounding words to your brother or sister as no different than if you had actually used a weapon. That's what he wants you to feel in this moment. In fact, take a look at this. I have a picture of somebody I want you to see. Uh, I bet a lot of you know this guy. Um, hopefully not personally. Uh, a documentary came out about him last month that Twitter just exploded uh, about. Uh, that is Ted Bundy. The documentary is on uh, Netflix, I believe. I don't think I would recommend you watching it because it's uh, gruesome and brutal. Uh, but it is telling. Ted Bundy is, uh, was a serial killer in the 70s and 80s on sort of the, the West Coast and, and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I think... Um, I think it's around 30 women that he brutally murdered. I think that's somewhere around the number. Uh, this man is a uh, narcissistic, nihilistic, sociopathic murderer. And he was given the death penalty for it. And you know what Jesus says the only difference is between that guy and you? The choice of murder weapon. 
He used a knife. We use our words. We're both killers. And if you're more offended right now by that sentence than you are humbled by that sentence, you don't understand what Jesus is talking about yet. This is why I think that the most at-risk people for judgment in the whole world are the nice people. The nice people. The, the non-Ted Bundys. The non-Axe murderers. Uh, folks like you and me, I'm guessing right now this room is, is populated with largely nice people. You probably uh, haven't chopped anybody up recently. And if you have, Stop. But my guess is that's probably not you. If you're at Stonegate at 11 a.m. in the morning, my guess is you're probably in the category of what I'm just categorically calling nice people. It's so, I feel so scared for us nice folks. Can I tell you why? It's because it is so hard to see your guilt when you don't have a rap sheet. It's so hard to see it. Do you ever wonder why Jesus was like super cool hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors? Like you read, you read about this in scripture, you're like, dude, did he even have an issue with them? Like he's just hanging out, they're having the best time, they're having meals together. And then when you put him in front of the, the, the pastors, right, the religious leaders of the day, he's saying some of the hardest stuff you've ever read. You're like, who is, what book is this? Right? Why is it? Why is he one way with these people and another way with those people? I'll tell you why. It's because it doesn't take much to convince a murderer they need a savior. It doesn't take much to convince somebody who has a whole lot of outside sin that they're guilty. We'll still give them the gospel, but it takes way less force than with the Pharisees. It's almost impossible. Listen, impossible to convince a nice person, a moral person, a religious person that they need saving. It's almost impossible. Even right now, there are some of you in this room, and you're hearing this, and you're just not connecting the dots yet. You're not realizing that it's you that we're talking about. It's, it has a blinding effect. Our morality can have a blinding effect on us. Uh, uh, we were in elder meeting a couple weeks ago and we brought in this ministry called Behind the Walls. It's a prison ministry. It's evangelistic. They go into prisons, correctional facilities, and they share the gospel with men and women. And the guys who came and told us about this ministry were telling us the, just the radical response that they were seeing to the gospel. Like dozens to hundreds of people coming to know Jesus, like at the drop of a hat. They just begin talking about Jesus and they're like, I'm in, I need a savior. Why? Because they see it, I'm behind bars. Of course I need help. Of course I need grace. Behind bars is a great place to figure out you need a savior. You know where the hardest space in the world to know you need a savior is? This room. Being right here among these people, these pleasant people, it is so hard. And it's, it's maybe because it, it's like the biggest lie of like southern religious culture is this. Jesus just wants me to behave. He's trying to make people who behave. Jesus died to make me nice. And if that's your understanding of the gospel, then yeah, you'd be really content with just like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a decent person. 
Jesus didn't come to make you nice. He came to make you new. And I need you to see that nice is a million miles away from new. In fact, let's talk for a minute about the difference between nice and new. And I'm just asking you, as we go through this list, I'm just asking you to to ask God to help you see, like, where do you honestly fall? Where do you honestly fall? Like, actually ask him that as we're going through this. These are the differences between a nice person, just a religious person, a moral person, and a new person, a Christian, somebody who truly knows Jesus and walks with Jesus. A nice person takes comfort in the fact that they haven't broken the law. (sighs) At least I haven't. At least I'm not. But a new person sees that the thoughts and attitudes of their heart make them a lawbreaker before God. A nice person fights to avoid outward sin. They do. But a new person fights to be free from outward sin and inward sin. A nice person thinks that their biggest problem is what they do with their hands. My external obedience. A new person knows the biggest problem is what they do in their heart. A nice person sees themselves as better than the Bundys, than the murderers, than the rapists and the criminals. They see themselves as better than. But a new person humbly sees that in the final analysis, sin inside them makes them just as much as a criminal as the folks in max security. A nice person is optimistic about their ability to do good, to be good. But a new person knows they could never be good enough to meet God's standard, which makes them needy for a savior. Do you see that? Now just take an honest assessment of yourself this morning. Let's not play around. Just ask, where where do you see yourself on this list? Because you have to have a sense that it's entirely possible for you to do the church thing your whole life, for you to do the morality thing your whole life and completely miss the cross and completely miss Jesus and perish because of it. I don't want that for you. Are you new? Are you just nice? Jesus is telling us that our problem is is not external but internal. That's the first thing. But he isn't done upsetting our understanding of the world. Not only is our problem internal, but our penalty, he says, is eternal. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Notice the exact same phrase, Two times, back to back, liable to judgment. Same words in the Greek twice, same words in the English twice. What's Jesus doing? He's equivocating. He's saying, the penalty for this one thing that you know super bad is is this, and that exact same penalty is for this other thing that you don't find bad at all. What's the penalty? Well, the word he chooses here is the word judgment. Crisis in the Greek. It just means trial or 
judgment. It's meant to evoke images of a, of a courtroom where somebody is tried for a crime. Okay, so just go with me here. That's, that's fine, but now we should feel a little confusion because I, I get being prosecuted for murder, right? There's, eviden- there's evidence, there's eyewitnesses. I could stand before a courtroom and be prosecuted for this outward thing that I did. But how on the earth do you prosecute somebody for anger? What court in the world could prosecute somebody for something that's happening inside their chest? You see the point he's making, don't you? Nobody can do that on earth. What he's saying is there is a judge who can scrutinize past your outward actions into your inward motives. There is somebody who does that and he will do that for all who are angry and his name is God. He's talking about God. What's his point? His point is that you thought the penalty for sin was merely temporal, like what happens to me in this life. But I say that the penalty that awaits you is eternal. He's talking about hell here. In fact, this is the very first time in your whole New Testament, did you know this, that the word hell is mentioned. For whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Just feel this for a moment. There is something real and eternal at stake here. Hell. Hell if we persist in our anger. Hell. Do you hear that? We're not playing a game right now. We're talking about hell. This is as important a matter we will ever discuss at this church. Our problem isn't external, it's internal. And because of that, the consequence is not just temporal, it is eternal. And therefore, Jesus says, in light of that, our greatest need, the thing we need most in the world, isn't religion, it's reconciliation. It's reconciliation. Let's go to verse 23. Jesus has just made his argument. We've explained it. That's what this sermon has been. And now he pivots. He moves from the argument to the what's next. And he does it by saying the word so. So, or therefore, or in light of what I just said, these things follow. You should act in these ways. And he gives two illustrations of reconciliation. Let's look at the first. Verse 23. So, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So get the setting. It's it's a temple sort of worship service and you have somebody coming and performing an act of worship to God at the temple or if it helps to modernize this, So, if you show up at church Sunday morning and you find that you're singing the songs on the screen and it occurs to you that your brother has a beef with you, that you've wronged him or offended him and that there's not harmony or reconciliation there, you need to do something. And it's not sing more songs. 
And it's not pray a little harder, open up your Bible, or squash it down with some... See, well, that's what we do, isn't it? When we, when we have sin issues inside of us and relational issues outside of us, a lot of us nice people, we love to dress up in religion and get all religious and come to church and wash up real nice because it makes us feel good. Oh, I'm here in this space now and like maybe this is, is doing some real spiritual good, but Jesus is looking at us going, what spiritual good? Your heart is in the wrong place. What do I care what your body does? I'm not interested in that. Do you know what the, the most sacred and holy thing you could do if you have that realization while you're in worship today, he says? The most holy and sacred thing you could do today is leave church. Leave and be reconciled to your brother first. That's the priority. And then come. Then come worship. Then come sing. Then come present your gift at the altar. Not, don't leave because God hates you or, or because you're just too bad to be at church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God doesn't want your show. Stonegate, listen. God doesn't want your show. He is super unimpressed with you being in this room right now. He doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. You being here does not make up for deficiencies in you. This has been the posture of Scripture for, for the whole length of the Bible. Isaiah, in Isaiah, it says uh, that I despise, God's talking, I despise your new moons. I despise your festivals. Away with them. Your hands, he says, are covered in blood. I don't want your religion if your heart isn't here. We're glad you're here this morning. I really am. If you're a first-time guest, <laughs> welcome to Stonegate. We really are glad you're here, but if you know, Christian, that you have a beef with somebody in the family of God, I just, I'm just telling you what the text says. It is unwise for you to sing these next songs with us. It's unwise. You have a bigger priority, and that's to reconcile with your brother or sister. So I don't know what that means for you. I don't know who's coming to your mind when I say that. But I suspect maybe somebody is, for some of us. And maybe for you that means that you need to make a phone call in the lobby today. Like now. Maybe for you, you need to pull somebody aside in this room today who you have conflict with and who you need to own your part of it, repent for your part of it, ask for forgiveness for your part of it, and you need to grab that person today. The urgency is high. The criticality is high. We have to move now. Do not wait. I'm serious, when we start singing these songs, if God's convicting your heart, you need to do something about it. You don't need to sing with us until you've reconciled. That goes for me too. Psalm 66 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Can you imagine that? That's not how Christians talk nowadays. That's not how we talk. That's how the Bible talks. How could he? How could he hear? 
Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this, puts it like this. For God to accept our devotions while we are delighting in sin would be to make himself the God of hypocrites, which is a fitter name for Satan than for the Holy One of Israel. He doesn't want your external religion if you don't have reconciliation. He doesn't want it. My wife is a, is a wonderful example of this to me. She's, she, this has happened a number of times uh, for her at Stonegate. She's been in worship, and it occurs to her as she's singing, that car ride up with the kids was a mess, and I was way harsh with them, and that was not okay. I said things I didn't need to, and I sinned against them. And she has gotten up in service, left, went to the kids' ministry, taken our kids out so she could sit them down in the lobby and ask for their forgiveness. And then she'll send them back and come worshiping because she knows this isn't a joke. This is serious. We need to be right with our brother and sister. We have to fight for reconciliation. It's that urgent. Reconcile with your brother, Jesus tells us. But there's one more illustration and therefore one more person that we must reconcile with and Jesus gives us it here in verse 25. Look with me. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Now at first glance, this is a very similar thing to what's happening in the last illustration, right? You have a guy who's in conflict with another person. In this case, it's a debt that he owed. He's being taken to court. He says, you should probably sort that out with him, reconcile with him before you get to court because there's a good chance you could wind up in jail and you won't get out. That's the story. And on the one hand, that's a good illustration to reinforce that we need to reconcile with our brother, but I actually think something's deeper, something deeper is happening here, and I don't want us to miss it. Uh, here's why I think that. For one thing, if you're Jesus, and uh, your, your point of your uh, uh, sermon right here is to say that our problem is internal and our penalty is eternal, if that's like the main thrust of your argument, it would be weird if your application to illustrate that argument is, therefore, Make sure you stay out of prison and, uh, and, you know, make friends with the guy you owe money to. That would be a weird thing. Like if, if I was saying my first point, I wouldn't illustrate it with that illustration. Do you see? Uh, reason number two I think it's odd is because what does ha- owing a debt to somebody have to do with the sin of anger? If he's talking about anger and murder and those things being produced in our heart and that we need to reconcile because of that, what does it matter uh, that, that I have a debt maybe that I owe to somebody? I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not making the connection here. Now, I could be wrong on this, but I think that Jesus is saying something deeper here than what it seems. I think what he's saying is that we do have a debt. And we have somebody we're in debt to, and we have judgment that awaits us. And there is no chance of escaping once we've been sentenced. I think he's saying all that, but I think he's talking about God. He's talking about reconciling with God. Please don't miss the weight of this. Listen, gosh, I, I want to talk to the person right now who maybe there's just, just an inkling of conviction in you or, or of like clarity that like maybe, maybe I am the nice person, not the new person. Maybe that's me. If there's any of that registering in you at all, I just need you to hear this. If you're getting the sense that maybe 
Maybe something's up or maybe you're just blind to it and you're just going, I don't, I don't buy it. I'm good. I want to speak to you. There is someone who has a suit against you now. And there is a judge and he peers past your outer veneer as nice as it may be and he sees all the way down into your heart and your desires and he looks not only at the outside but he searches the very depth of you and listen, one day you will, I promise you, you will stand before that judge utterly naked and utterly exposed in your sin. All of you sifted, sifted. He'll see it all. And on that day, you will not be able to soothe yourself with thoughts like, I wasn't a criminal. I led a good life. I haven't broken the law. It will fall on deaf ears. He will see all your unrighteous anger to your family, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your neighbor. He will see your unforgiveness. He will see your grudge keeping and your mean-spirited gossip and your slander and your emotional distancing and your passive aggression. He'll see it all and you will beg for mercy on that day, but you won't find it. Not on that day. Because on that day, it's the day of his wrath poured out for sinners. The day for mercy has come and gone at that point. I'm pleading with you, don't be blind to your need for a savior this morning like those Pharisees were. Don't be blind to your need for Jesus. You need someone else's record. You need somebody else's good works and good heart on your behalf. You're not good enough. Just like the man in this illustration, you have to be reconciled to God before it's too late. And I have great news for you. It's not too late today. It's not too late. Colossians 1, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The very one that you owe a debt to right now offers to pay your debt for you. The same one that's warning you here in Matthew 5 of the fine that you owe is the same one who's offering to pay your fine and did it in Matthew 27. Be reconciled to God through Christ today. He's your only hope. Your good works are not going to carry you. Before you sing these songs, that's the reconciliation that you need to do. You need to run to him. You need to beg him for mercy. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You need to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your outside sins and your dark heart. And when you do that, he will rescue. He's eager to do it this morning. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed as white as snow. That's what he's up to this morning. Don't waste another moment. Be reconciled to each other and be reconciled to God. Let's pray.
Father. You must love us a lot to show us the depths of the darkness of our heart. Because it's the only way we'll see Jesus as a precious Savior. He will be dull and old news to us unless we're convinced that there's no hope apart from him. God, I pray that you convince us there's no hope apart from him. I pray for those who came in with a, with a hard heart this morning, with a blind eye this morning to their need for you. I pray for those who, who, who comfort themselves in this room with the fact that they're pretty good. God, would you convict them of their sin inwardly? And would you show them their need for a savior? And I'll just invite you while you're praying, if that's you, throw yourself on Christ. Trust in him. He's your only hope. He's the only one that can give you new life. He's the only one that can pay your debt. Trust in him. And if you do that, it is right and good for you to share that with somebody. And so as we begin worshiping and singing here in a moment, Go back to the prayer tables. We, we have a room lined with people on that back wall that are saying yes to wanting to hear this news and pray with you and for you. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If he saved you, go share that news. And again, as we're praying, if God is bringing up somebody in your mind, in your heart that you know that you have unreconciliation with, that you have tension with, that you have a beef with, that you have wronged or offended, that your anger has gotten in the way of peace with, don't sit here anymore. Deal with it right now. As we, as we start singing these songs, this is your opportunity to, to move and to reconcile. Is it gonna cost you something? It definitely will. It'll cost you your pride, It'll, it, it'll cost you uh, having to have a hard conversation. It'll, have to, it'll cost you having to own stuff that maybe you didn't want to own. But it's better to obey this command than to come and sing some Christian-y songs and cover over it with some religion. Don't do it. God, would you move in us as we sing and as we worship and as we reconcile with you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.